HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, April 19th, 2017, and this is the 139th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding porcelain wares designer, and I'm going to introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to always be yourself and do what feels right for you. There are infinite possibilities and directions we can go, and what works for you may not work for someone else, and vice versa. There simply isn't one way to do anything or get from point A to B, as life is not one size fits all. It's okay to have your own style and way of doing things. In fact, it's better, as life would be pretty boring if we all did everything the same. So be unique or a unicorn and the best you. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest on the show. It is Keith Krieger. He is an Austin-based porcelain wares designer for restaurants and chefs. After spending a summer interning on Capitol Hill, Keith planned to go to law school until he took a ceramics class at Skidmore College in New York. His career went in a new direction, opening a contemporary craft gallery on Cape Cod, which he had for 12 years, before moving to Austin, Texas with his family, where he now runs Keith Krieger Studios. So welcome, Keith. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited you're here all the way from Austin. It came up, uh, you know, never turned on a trip for New York. So <laughs> I, I grew up here, so it's always good to come home and 
fun, fun to be here. Oh, great. Where did you, so where did you grow up and what? Uh, uh, I grew up in Westchester County. So went to Mamaroneck High School and, um, like you said, went up to Skidmore College for, uh, for school and was an American studies major and kind of fell into ceramics. So now I, uh, have fallen into the restaurant industry and now I'm on this show. So good things happen. That's a good path. <laughs> well, I, I mean, when I was thinking about this or reading reading your bio that you intended to go to law school and then you switched to ceramics, it, personally for me, it hits home because my father is an, an attorney, studied law, and my my mom is an artist and makes lovely ceramics. And they, as far as career-wise, they're completely opposite. Um, and yet that was your path. You went from one to the other. So how did... How did you make that switch? Uh, I don't know if it was in, intentional. I was, I, I was an American studies major. So American studies is sort of this cross between history and English. So you, you study culture. You study the material culture. Um, and so I ended on, interned on the Hill, and I just I loved that. It was the first summer where I, like, worked and wrote a lot during the summer. And just I, I loved the, uh, uh, the, the energy of that. And then the following summer, I was staying up at school because Skidmore's in Saratoga Springs, which is a gorgeous town in the summer. And I figured if I got through those winters, I should maybe see what it looks like uh, in, in the nice part of the year. Yeah. Um, and then I also thought if I stay up, I should take a fun class. So I took ceramics, so, you know, basically to get the art requirement out of the way um, and an anthro uh, anthropology class. And I started spending as much time as possible in the studio. I just fell in love with process. I've always been process based. And, um, I spent probably 14-hour days in the studio, had to drop the anthropology class because I forgot to go to it, <laughs> and um, just uh, just fell in love with, with clay, um, and I've been doing it ever since. I didn't realize it was going to become a career or, or a job. I just knew that um, it was something I, I kind of had to do, um, and luckily, I was halfway through my American Studies major already at, by that point, so I was able to finish out that as a major, minored in studio art at that point, and... Um, had some great mentors along the way and, um, that's the path. So I don't, you know, it wasn't, and it's how, how I run my business and how I've run my life is you sort of take these chances and you take a step and you see which direction it leads. And if it's a good one, you keep going. And if you find another way, you do it and go from there. So I can relate to that because I've, I've never had a plan. I just kind of go and yeah, figure uh, things out as I'm going from the outside. It looks like, you know what you're doing. Yeah. So that's, that's always good. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I just gave it away, but <laughs> so so you were in you were in Cape Cod with doing a gallery, and then mm-hmm. you I mean making making ceramics. I mean, yeah. and how did you? I mean, how did you hone your skill at it and become like your make your own uh, identity? I guess with with doing ceramics, it um, just from making a lot of work. Um, I can look through my kind of historical pots and see which which teacher, which artist influenced me at the time. Because I think just like cooking, you kind of, you get inspired by someone, you start, you figure out how to do that, and then you figure out how to make it your own. Um, so I'm confident in my work now. I wasn't always. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is just maturity and, and old age, which is where I am at this point. But um, it's... Uh, I had really great mentors. So at Skidmore, there was this woman, Toshiko Takezu, who, um, when I met her, she was in her mid-70s, and she was five foot one Japanese-Hawaiian woman. 
and she would work through the night on these six-foot vessels that ended up at the Smithsonian Institution and Art Institute of Chicago. So for me, within like my first three weeks of making pots, I was exposed to this whole other realm of what you could do with clay and the energy it took to actually make that happen. Um, sorry, I'm rambling, but yeah. So. No, you're not rambling. I, that's that's what I wanted, <laughs> wanted, wanted to know. I mean, you had, so you had an amazing mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and great teachers. Yeah. yeah. And that support system that you get from a, a community and um, just helps push you along and it helps you find your way and find your voice. So Right. Um, but the only way to find your voice is to actually do the work and to fail at copying others was a big thing for me early on. And, you know, when you're young, you, you see something and you make it. And then you realize that it's not your work. And then you have to figure out how to, how to drive and push through that and find your style. So how would you describe your style now? Um, Is that a tricky question? It's always a tricky question to <laughs> talk in detail about that. But it's just it's clean and contemporary, I guess. Is um, I used to use the phrase handmade industrial. Because I think my work references what people know from tabletop, what they know from, you know, the diner mug. Um, but when you interact with the work, you feel that there's a different layer within that. Um, and that you can only get by by using your hands. Um, I think as a, as a potter, you get to kind of pick and choose from industry and look at processes that are used and then figure out how to slow things down to the point that you can use them in your studio. So we use, you know, we use molds, we use plaster, we use different tools that, you know, we basically steal from what industrially made objects are making. We just get to pick and choose which parts of the process that hands are important to be on. Got it. So when did you open your studio in Austin? So I moved to Austin. We moved in 2009. Um, okay. So we closed the gallery um, on the Cape, and that's where we started the conversation. Sorry, but yeah. So um, <laughs> we're, and and I've never <laughs> been. I've never been to the Cape. This comes to my growing up in Miami thing, where I haven't been all over the north, right, right. east, like most people who grew up here. But I'd like to go one day. <laughs> it's it's beautiful, and I mean, we. I, I was there 12 years. My wife put in a solid eight and a half years of uh, of winters um she grew up in houston originally that's that's how i ended up in okay, Texas. so that's... when you marry a texan they make you move there they just it's in the fine print of the contract you just don't realize it yeah um but, <laughs> but austin's been great and um um yeah so we moved there in 2009 but i had to shift my business completely because we left it was a kind of we had a retail store right on the main street my studio was behind it and it was attached to our house so it was kind of this all-in-one kind of idyllic um kind of old school pottery type setup um and i started it when i was really young and um i think i was 23 when i started it. so people would walk into the shop look at the pots and then ask where the potter was because <laughs> i think they were expecting a 70 year old man with a with a giant beard but yeah um, i'm getting old enough to be a potter and uh <laughs> it's, it's working still young yeah so when you when you're on the cape you weren't were you working with chefs or restaurants or that started when you were in Austin? That started in Austin. Okay. Um, and I kind of fell into the hospitality world because what I knew was that all of my customers, people who are using handmade objects, handmade plates, they understood the importance of that object. So these are the people who shopped at farmer's markets, you know, thought about the sourcing of their food. Um, thought about all the details that go into the meal, 
also had handmade work in their home and understood the context and the, the importance of the object within that setting. And I looked at restaurants and I thought, it's not working that way. So all of my customers were restaurants customers. They were, you know, going out to eat at these great restaurants. They were using my plates at home. Other restaurant customers were not completing that circle. So they were going out to eat at these great restaurants. They were similarly buying food at farmer's markets and sourcing their, their food at, you know, organic, whole foods, everything. And then they would take their food, they would cook it, and they would serve it in on an industrially made plate from, you know, some mm-hmm. factory store somewhere. So why would you go through that effort and then leave out that last step of the process? So I started photographing my work with food. I started doing some events around food, but I wasn't trying to target chefs as customers. I just wanted their customers to start buying my plates for their house because of my retail background. That's the way my mind was working. Then all of a sudden chefs started calling and I was like, well, this is cool. How many plates do you want? We can figure out how to make that. We'll figure out how to make it happen. And it just kind of, uh, you know, kept, kept rolling. Sort of. Mm-hmm. So, so who was a first chef or one of the first chefs you worked with? Um, in Austin, we were, were lucky. And I moved there in 2009, which was like this kind of um, the beginning of this boom of, of restaurants opening there and this the kind of next level of restaurants. So we did the full run for Paul Key's restaurant when he opened Key. Um, we do a lot of work with Tyson Cole at Uchi and... Um, he now has four restaurants in, in Texas that we, we make plates for. Um, Which but are all... I, I haven't been because I'm due for an Austin trip. We were but, just talking about that yeah. before the show. You definitely have to get I'm so due, but um, those those places I, I've heard of and I know I, they're they're on my list. Great. Yeah. No, I mean, and they're, they're great restaurants in Austin. It just keeps, keeps getting better and better. We, mm-hmm. It's pushing forward. So we work with about, I think, eight restaurants in Austin at this point and about 40 restaurants across the country. So it's so, uh, and when you say we, are you, what's your team like, royal, or is that just royal, you? The royal we. No. You gonna lo- go making <laughs> no, some no, plates I, later tonight? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I've got a I've I've got a good team uh, that helps me make stuff, and it's um, that's been a challenging aspect of growth, figuring that part out. Because um, for you know, first eighteen years of my career, I just made made stuff Mm -hmm. i would have help in the studio but it was always ancillary and kind of um the grunt work um but i had to as i grow figure out how to produce the work where you know my hands are limited as far as how much i can do in a given day so i had to figure out how to design work that other people with without 20 years of skills can can help with and you know we're, we're we're working hard we've got three people in the studio that help out um kind of part-time and you know come and go they've all got their own ceramic careers as well and it's uh it, it, it's a great setup yeah well well yeah you've i mean congratulations your work is beautiful and you're you're continuing to grow your business and um i saw this quote in i don't know an art interview with you and i it said you said I make pottery because I think the objects we use on a daily basis are as important as what they hold. And I love that. I think that's that's just a great, uh, simple, but it makes sense. Like, yes, we should. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I strongly preach that all the time. I mean, I think when you hold something that was made by hand, whether or not you know the person, there is there is a connection and there's something that's understood. And I think... Um, 
it's fun to see it happen in the hospitality world because it's 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 newish, right? It's probably the last ten years or so that handmade plates have really become a thing. Mm-hmm. But you, I think people recognize it, you know, especially dining today, where so much of it is is sharing and passing plates across the table, and and the touch. Uh, I mean, the plates are one of the only things that is are really touched in the restaurant. Um, you know, you look at design, you look at all these things that kind of bring it down and then on that level of the table you know that that's what's there and that's where you're connecting with your with your dinner guests that's where you're connecting with the people you're there so it's the object matters yeah no it totally matters so on that note let's take a little break here and then we're going to come back and talk some more with keith so stay with us this is all in the industry on heritage radio network the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls, but here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Keith Krieger. He's a porcelain wares designer for restaurants and chefs based in Austin, Texas. His work is beautiful. And actually, he brought me a mug, which I'm looking at right now. And I was going to I was gonna squeal about this before um, the show, and he handed it to me. I decided I'd wait for the show because I love it. So thank you. Of course. You're welcome. And so I was at... Makato in DC, and my friend uh, Pichet Ong does some work with them. And Pichet's great. This design was a part of a plate that I don't. I uh, posted a picture from Makato, and Pichet was like, "That's Keith Krieger," and now I know that's your style. <laughs> but that am I am I hitting this right? It's a, yeah. a part of that. Yeah, no, collection. I mean, yeah, that that signature style with that incised black line is sort of you know it's it's very recognizable as my work and um, yeah it, uh, it's a great it's a great design yeah yeah i mean and it's what, what we were talking about earlier it's simple but it it uh references you know ceramic history but just done in a little bit different way and the fun thing for me is it and i think it works for chefs is because it is so simple but it gives a little bit of framing to the plate mm-hmm. so they have room to play and we do different variations on it and it's fun to see how different chefs uh play along you know color inside or outside the lines that that we put on the stuff yeah no it's it's i don't want to say it's a smart design but it's it's <laughs> got character it's it's great and now i have i have my own so i'm super excited enjoy <laughs> 
Let me ask you, so this is a good segue into my question I had from last week. So I had on episode 138, Larry Campagna, the Director of Business Development, and John Tobin, Director of Hotels at Shamit Design and Construction, which is a national construction management company. So they want to know... If you build something custom for a particular restaurant or chef or even a particular dish, how does that dialogue start? So, like, what's the creative process working with chefs? Um, are you are they coming up with a vision and you're helping them create it, or is it you know how it, does it how does it work? Uh, um, there, there's no one size fits all. <laughs> um, you know, luckily our core line that we make the I call it the linea design. It's um, it, it works well. So a lot of chefs will, will just go with that. Um, I'm hopeful that when chefs call me, it's because they like my work and my style and aren't asking me to make something similar to someone else's work or, you know, another version of someone else's work. Um, but it can work anyway. I mean, sometimes a chef will just call up and be like, hey, you know, we need 36 plates and, you know, we need 400 plates, whatever. And sometimes they're very specific and the rambling again sorry um but basically um best thing to do is talk to the chef about what sizes styles they use and then figure out what within our collection we can do um we have room to customize so we can do different surfaces you know matte glaze versus the shiny and all of that stuff just you know makes the the, the food react differently visually um and then we can do full custom. So we just did 3,600 plates for uh, Alex Stupak at his new Empeon, which was a logistical challenge. Um, Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about that a little before the show. Yeah. And I've been by his new place in Midtown. And it's yeah. it's a, it's huge. It's, it's, it's um, like, impressive and a different, different um different area for Alex to be in and a whole different style. But that's that's a huge order. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was no joke. And it was, you know, I mean, my I have a little kind of showroom office um, attached to the, our studio. And that became a warehouse while we were finishing the order. And, you know, there are all these these things that I didn't think about because usually we're making most orders are in the round of, you know, 300 to 600 for a, a restaurant that we're working with. Um, so that's easy. We make them and then we box them and then we ship them. But this kind of there was it was a, a different game as we uh, figured out. But Alex, is well, he was great to work with because he, he was very specific with what he wanted. Some of it was, you know, he knew he wanted matte glazes, so we figured out a few options. We tested some new colors. We did, we did stuff like that, and we, we based it off of our kind of standard work. So, you know, one line of plates we call the Hudson line, which is this kind of really has this, like, double-edge organic kind of feel to the, to the very... Very handmade. I, I, I use the word wonk when talking about those plates. Wonk? Wonk. They've got a little bit of wonk to them. So, wonk. Yeah. I like that. And um, and then we also have grammar. I grew up in New York, like I said, so I named stuff after New York. So we have a Gramercy collection, which is sort of this classic kind of almost like a coupe plate, just really simple flat plating area. And then the Chelsea plate, which is a little more contemporary, this kind of raised rim that just... Uh, stacks really nicely and looks beautiful on the table um so some of the work was that and then also these really specific things like 900 salsa ramekins to hold two ounces of salsa each because every table gets seven salsas you know a certain amount of guacamole and then we made these chip containers and his tortilla chips he wanted them to stand up in them so we like squeezed an oval that until we got it to the right point for his um 
how he wanted to serve it. And that way it all hits the table and all works together as one unit, even though it's a whole bunch of different components in there. I was going to ask you about the chips and salsa just because I've seen photos. It's a very um, Instagrammable uh, <laughs> photo. And, um, and yeah, so you did, you did all of, you did everything. Yeah. Um, so he wow. had someone make the, I think they're metal. I'm going to eat there tonight. So I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get the, the actual <laughs> details, but this tray that the seven salsas fit in. So, uh-huh. okay. you know, the tolerances we had for doing some of this stuff was really, um, really tough to figure out. So we also made tortilla warmers, which is something I had never done before. And we don't do too many lidded pieces for restaurants, but he needed 120 tortilla warmers. And it, it usually process wise in the studio, when I'm making a lid for something, I'm making a lid for that specific piece. So I'm measuring it for that piece. Um, and then that will go to a setting in the restaurant setting, I knew that a lid wasn't going to stay with that piece. It was going to go through the dish pit. It was going to get mixed up so that each piece had to be the same diameter. And so the tolerances for making that was a was a was something that we had to figure out process wise how to do. Very cool. Yeah. No. And I'm sure it's like the challenge of coming up with with a new a new dish or, or please a, you know what a chef is looking for. Um, I don't know. It's got to be exciting and challenging at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I have control issues um, as an artist. (laughs) And as you know from working with chefs, uh, some of them do as well. And the fun thing is, though, is collaborating with these people who are also very process-based. Like a chef can walk into my studio, see our equipment, and relate it to what they're doing. So we have a slab roller where we use to prep the clay and it looks like a dough sheeter that a pastry chef would use. And, you know, then we have the kilns, which are heat and all these things. And, you know, it's about refining the process over and over again. So you can repeat it much like a chef will figure out how to, you know, come up with a recipe, but then have it repeatable on a given night where, you know, consistency matters. Right. Um, but talking about the collaboration with chefs is great because, some of them, like the tortilla warmers, I'm pretty sure Alex is the only one who's going to use those. But other projects will have, someone will have something in mind and we get to create a new glaze that becomes part of our vocabulary or, you know, create a new form that becomes part of stuff. So, you know, filling people's needs helps, you know, our creative juices in the studio flow and figure out how to keep growing what we do. Yeah, no, that's great. So you have your products, you have porcelain, earthenware, and stoneware. Is there one you do more of, or what's your and what's, what's your favorite? Um, my favorite, <laughs> it, it changes, but <laughs> since moving to Austin, I've worked primarily in, and almost exclusively in porcelain. Okay. Um, so the difference between clays, and I can geek out on that for a long yeah, time. Yeah, if we have another hour yeah. show. But um, so porcelain's just this really pure white clay. Um and earthenware is a lower lower temperature, um, so it's actually not as sturdy for for use. It still usually is porous, so it'll soak up water during you know dishwashing and all that kind of stuff. So porcelain and stoneware are both very um, very durable. So um, that's why I work with porcelain. But the other reason was when moving from Cape Cod to Austin is I changed my kilns, and changing the types of firing process was going to change glazes and change all these other things so by working with the clean porcelain with the black line i was able to take most other variables out and really focus on form and really focus on on the details of creating this line of work um and it was a it was a a 
a choice to limit myself to figuring that out and then i started to add color back in so now we we you know we have a new cobalt blue glaze that blue oh, <laughs> oh my god that blue is gorgeous it's fun and um yeah and then this turquoise blue that works really really well and that i think you yeah you oh that's posted. what i was yeah, yeah, yeah. the turquoise yeah. well they're all but yeah that that i was thinking of the turquoise one it just has it's just it's a beautiful color it yeah it, and it's got this depth to it and it's on our matte glaze so it's got this beautiful surface um and it's also something that i didn't know how food would work on it it was a glaze that i first made for a um for some decor some vases that we were doing and then i thought let's figure out how to do it on on plates and um jen lewis was actually in town for us in food and wine fest and she was doing a tartare demo and she took the blue plate put um a beef tartare on it and it just it sung it was like gorgeous the color is playing off and you know that's when i was like wow that's gonna yeah that's gonna that's gonna work well yeah no it's it's interesting because yeah a, a, a turquoise blue i mean that color typically is not like a food color that mm-hmm. you see but yeah the contrast i could see that working yeah and i mean i think chefs are finding ways to play with color now it's you know and that's that's why my work gets used in restaurants is because no one wants to use just white plates anymore. And, you know, no one wants to, n- not no one, um, you know, people want to challenge themselves and they want to figure out how to, uh, as I'm talking about earlier, make, mm-hmm. make the plates be part of the, uh, part of the experience. Yeah. Um, I do a dinner in Austin called make eat drink and it's sort of this collaboration between chefs and artists. And what I try to do is flip it and, ask the chefs to help kind of come up with a plate idea and then figure out what kind of course they're going to, you know, what kind of dish they're going to make for that plate instead of, you know, having them come up with the menu item and then find a plate out of the pantry that's going to work on that. So we've been doing that and that's a, that's a fun, um, another way to collaborate and come up with new stuff too. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds fun. And uh, yeah, I like it. Okay. So we're going to take another break here and then we're going to come back and we're going to play my speed round game and talk industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Yeah, we all just Just plan our hands. Till the last stand. So tell your mama you've been spreading honey, won't you? Tell your brother you've been spreading honey. We are back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Keith Krieger. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple of things and you just pick your preference. Okay. So it's easy. Let's do it. We'll see. Some people think it's easy. Some think it's hard. (laughs) We'll see how you you do. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Um, Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? All of the above. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll, no, uh, cocktail. Usually cocktails. 
Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? That's a tough one. That's probably, yeah. I guess Um, I could say, or bowls or this. (laughs) um, I think large format is fun. Okay. Communal table or chef's counter? Um, Chef's counter. Want to see the process? Good reason. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Ooh. Um, uh, all-inclusive charge. It's, uh, yeah. Not sure if that's a topic of conversation in Austin, but it has been one It year. is. No, no, no. Okay. And uh, during South by Southwest uh, last year, Danny Meyer gave a, a talk about it, too. So definitely. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we talked about it. He came on my show. We talked about it, too. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. It's a deep topic for deep. sure. Very deep. How about Austin Wine and Food Festival or South by Southwest? Um, I'm going to be at Austin Food and Wine Festival. I'm doing a uh, throwing demo. I'm going to teach a chef how to make plates. So we'll, we'll go with that. And oh, it's coming up next weekend. Oh, that should be fun. Yeah. How about Franklin's Barbecue? Worth the wait or not worth the wait? <laughs> Always worth the wait. Um, yeah, there that's what I figured. There are very few things in life that live up to the hype, and I'd say... The Hamilton Broadway show and Franklin Barbecue top that list. Okay. Well, that's that's a good comparison, and I'm planning to go when I make whatever Austin trip I'm going to make. How about um, cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Last one, Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Austin? Oh. Um, oh that... I, don't know if I have an answer to that one. Had a pass on that one. <laughs> um, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't. Um, yeah. Okay. No. Um, Three way tie. I love, no. I, I I love coming to New York. I'm from here. Um, I love my city of Austin, but Manhattan has uh, some some generations deep uh, deep things to me. So. Yeah. Well, you're naming your plates after Manhattan. That says something. <laughs> awesome. That's the game. Okay. That was easy. Oh, very good. Ish. Easy ish. <laughs> So uh, industry news, I just picked out an article in the New York Post by Steve Cuso. It was entitled Daniel Ballou to open a massive restaurant next to Grand Central. So this is talking about how everyone knows Chef Daniel Ballou. Um, He's spectacular and he's opening a new place at One Vanderbilt, which is going to be a 1,400 foot tall skyscraper with 1.7 1.7 million square feet of office space. They were saying, I saw another article that it was the second highest office building. It will be the second highest office building in New York after World Trade once it's built. So Daniel Blue is going in there, and um, I think it's exciting. Yeah. Any any thoughts on this? Um, <laughs> you want to make his plates? Uh, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it selfish that I want to make everyone's plates? But, no, no. Um, no, it's... Uh, I, th- I think it's definitely interesting. I think massive restaurants are are interesting. And I think also, to me, it shows how important real estate is into understanding restaurants. And I think successful restaurateurs and chefs, A, understand that, but also the really successful ones have access to real estate that gives them the, the opportunities to make stuff happen. Yes. True. Well, this said that he is, it's not a traditional partnership that he's going to be investing in it, which is a little different. Mm -hmm. Talked a bit on my show about how restaurants are going into hotels and that's becoming, you know, more popular thing in the restaurant 
but well, it was pretty much, you know, the hotel's taking care of the cost and that benefit. But so this is a little different. Um, Also, there's a bit of a trend of these bigger, higher end restaurants opening uptown. I mean, we're talking about Alex Dubeck, who went to Midtown. Um, Also, like 11 Madison Park is going to be opening on on Park Avenue up there. And you have the Four Seasons, which is changing locations, and um, they're going to be on Park Avenue. So there's, there's stuff happening uptown. I think I'm talking a lot. Uh, there's a lot also happening way downtown, but it's like uptown and downtown. Yeah, but, it, it, but it's interesting since um, less people live in these, you know, live, not as many mm-hmm. people live midtown. They live in all these other neighborhoods that have all these restaurants, but there is nothing um, not nothing. There is there's less um, options for kind of one off restaurants in Midtown, I think, than there are um, in other neighborhoods. So it's interesting to see these chefs go there and, and, and bring stuff up there. Yeah. And he's I mean, this skyscraper, I said he's going to be on the second floor and then his on the first floor. He's going to have his uh, I always pronounce it wrong. The episode. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I took Spanish in uh, high school and college. So I'm going to let you do that one. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I can't get that one right. But his his more casual takeout right, right. bakery component is going to be in the first level. Um, and no, it's it's exciting to see to see that happen. I think it's. Uh, yeah. New York skyline is is going to be changing. It keeps changing. Yeah, yeah. C- cities either grow or die. There's kind of nothing in between. So, um, yeah, I, I think growth is good usually. Yeah, I agree. Well, mm-hmm. congratulations. Well, it, this I don't think it's going to be open for. I think that said 2020. This building. I mean, we're oh, wow. we're far out. Yeah. But uh, you can look. That's for, a big big announcement. We, we can me. look. We can look forward to that. So then. I have a bunch of events I'm going to, which I'm going to share now um, as as the other part of industry news, just because I have this really crazy week and a half coming up. So tomorrow I'm heading to Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival, and uh, this is its 10th annual conference, and it's my first time attending, and I'm really excited. I had David Allen Bernal on my episode 115, and we talked about the festival. So anyone, you can go check it out, and um, their website is pbfw.com. So I'm heading there, and then I'm staying on the West Coast because I'm going to the Worlds of Flavor Conference in Napa Valley at the Culinary Institute of America in Greystone. And this is my second year going, and it's 19th annual conference. This year, the theme is Casual by Design. It's curated by my friend Anne McBride, and she was on my episode 63. And I'm going to be doing, uh, I'm moderating some panels, one on social media, and uh, it should be great. So I'm going to be there. If you want to check that out, that's worldsofflavor.com. And then my crazy trip leads me to Chicago because I'm going to the James Beard Awards, which take place on Monday, May 1st at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. And this is the third year that the awards are in Chicago. Um, I've been going every year and I'm planning to cover it. Uh, I'll be in the media room upstairs at the press room they have. And um, also in New York City on April 25th is the, well, the media awards are on April 25th. This is the chef and restaurant awards which are going to be in chicago so um i'm excited i love going and congratulations to all the nominees and wishing you the best their websites jamesbeard.org so all of these all of these festivals i'm going to plan to wrap up in an all in the industry on the road episode at some point in the near future so you can stay tuned for that 
And then lastly, when I get back, it is New York Burger Week in New York, obviously. Um, It's a part of National Hamburger Month, which is in May. And New York Burger Week is a seven-day burger celebration from May 1st to 7th. And it's brought by Burger Quest and Rev Ciancio. And I am sponsoring its May 5th event at Joneswood Foundry entitled British Burger Invasion. There's also a burger crawl on May 6th and lots of events. So you can check that out at burgerconquest.com. And that is all my announcements. And now we're going to take a little break and then come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Dill. Here's the rundown. The location, Haif Visgada 12, 101 Reykjavik, Iceland. The concept, a new Nordic restaurant promoting local food cultures and seasonal ingredients. The chef, Olafur Olafur Olafur. I'm going to say, start over on this. Scratch that. Let's try this again. The chef, Olafur Alafsson, and the founding chef, Gunnar Carl Gislason. So why did I go? Because I know Gunnar, and we had met a couple years ago at the Roots Conference at the Chef's Garden, and I'm a fan, and I was in Iceland. So my experience. I arrived at bit windblown walking from my hotel. There was like a sporadic hail and snowstorm happening, but luckily I only had to go a few blocks. I was warmly greeted and and instructed to leave my coat stuff at the self-serve coat rack, which was up front. So I did so. I took a seat at a two-top in the intimate dining room. Service was efficient and personable, and they had different servers and chefs bringing bringing the plates throughout the meal. So it was nice. I got to meet Olafur, who brought me a couple of my dishes. What did I get? So I opted for the five-course tasting menu. There was also a seven-course option. And it included Arctic char and cucumber, smoked haddock, potato and scare, rump, fennel, and parsley, and a pear almond and birch dessert. And I also had elderflower, elderflower sparkling water to drink. So my take. I loved my meal. Each course was unique and delicious, and everything was presented on mix-matched, beautiful plates. Just thinking of my guest, Keith. <laughs> my favorite course was a smoked haddock. It was divine, and I loved the pear dessert. 
Uh, and I also could have eaten the whole bread basket, which was house-made bread and it was served warm. The ambiance. It's a dimly lit with dark woods and an open kitchen. It felt as though it was someone's home. Perfect for food lovers. Interesting tidbit. Doe was awarded one Michelin star this year. It's the first Icelandic restaurant to earn such an honor. Another interesting tidbit. Gunnar is now the chef at Agern in New York City's Grand Central Terminal, which I've been to, and it's excellent. He earned three stars by the New York Times. Now, unfortunately, a few weeks ago, there was flooding damage to the main restaurant caused by nearby construction. And I was starting to think maybe this is one Vanderbilt that we talked about earlier in the show that's being built nearby. But um, it's unfortunate, and the restaurant's closed right now, so I wish them the best at getting open. And then I have one more interesting tidbit. My friend Jody Eddy wrote in the award-winning book North, The New Nordic Cuisine of Iceland with Gunnar, which came out in 2014. Personal fun fact. I met a nice couple from Atlanta who were sitting next to me. The woman was a private chef who went to the CIA in Hyde Park, and we talked about Atlanta's growing dining scene. The cost was $110. That's converted into U.S. And would I go back? Yes, when in Iceland, I would. The website is dillrestaurant.is. So that was a mouthful. But have you been to Iceland? <laughs> I have not. It is uh, one of those places that is high on the list, and all of a sudden, every single person I know seems to be there uh, and yeah. you know, taking their trips and and posting it on Instagram. So I'm jealous of all of it. I started to see that and decided to be one of those people to do that. <laughs> I think that's a good move. That's, I'm, I'm jealous. So it was it was a great trip. And I, I had a great meal there. So, okay, it's time for the final question. So, my next guest is Barbara Lynch. She is a world renowned chef and restaurateur from Boston who has a new memoir, Out of Line A Life of Playing with Fire. Keith, can you ask a question for Barbara? Uh, yes, and I, it's somewhat selfish because it's something I'm going through with, with the growth of my business, but. I would ask, as you've grown as a chef, how important learning how to mentor your team has become and what suggestions you have for other people who are growing a team and, and relying on other people to help you fulfill your vision. That's an amazing question. <laughs> no, Thanks. No, it is. It is. And I feel, and, and a great one for her because she... I mean, she's she has a, an empire now of restaurants, and mm-hmm. and she's mentored a lot of people. Yeah, so. and, I mean, was the forefront of that that dining scene, that city, and you see the influence and um, see where things go from having someone understand how to make it happen. Yeah, well, cool. I will definitely ask her. And um, that's the show. So thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Thanks for thanks for having me and letting me uh, letting me talk plates and objects. I, I loved it. I could talk more with you, and I'm just impressed with with all that you've done. I think your work is is beautiful, and I, I wish you continued success. Oh, thanks so much. And when you come back to New York, let me know. Well, we'll go to dinner or something. Absolutely. <laughs> and when I come to Austin, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah we, I will show you around our city for sure. Awesome. So my guest today has been Keith Krieger. He's porcelain wares designer for restaurants and chefs. He's based in Austin, Texas. You can find him at keithkrieger.com. And his last name is spelled K-R-E-E-G-E-R. You can also follow him on social media at Keith Krieger. And follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. 
You can always find our shows in the archives. We're at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks to my engineer today, David. Awesome having you here. And um, we're on a little break here at Heritage Radio for the next two weeks. It's a little season break, and also I'm going to be traveling. So my next live show is going to be Wednesday, May 10th at 4 p.m., and that's with Barbara Lynch. So I hope you'll tune in then. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. On the top of the hill, you-